Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On our program tonight, new mandatory testing for travelers kicks in today in Ontario with new federal quarantine rules coming as soon as this week. As provinces deal with a cut in vaccines, the federal government considers options if Europe abandons a promise not to cut shipments of vaccines to Canada. And this health expert will tell us why he believes the lack of vaccine manufacturing in Canada has been a cardinal failure of the government. And our panel of parliamentary journalists will be here to weigh in on the top stories of the day. Let's begin with the latest pandemic developments in Canada. All international travellers arriving at Toronto's Pearson Airport are now facing mandatory COVID-19 testing. That started today. And starting Thursday, all international travellers to Canada will be funneled to just four airports in Vancouver, Calgary, Toronto and Montreal. And when they touch down, they will face a mandatory test and three-day quarantine that could start as early as Thursday at a government-designated hotel at a cost of more than $2,000 paid for by the travellers themselves. And today there were calls for even stricter travel rules. Families have had to sacrifice so much during this pandemic. Many families haven't even seen their loved ones living in the same city. The Prime Minister has to do his part as well it's still possible to take non-essential flights in Canada. While other countries like New Zealand and Australia have stopped all non-essential travel, why hasn't the Prime Minister put in place similar measures here in Canada to stop all non-essential air travel? The Honourable Minister. Mr. Speaker, as I stated earlier, our current rules are among the strictest in the world. We've been calling on all Canadians to avoid non-essential travels. We've reached an agreement with the airlines to suspend all flights that are uh, heading towards most popular vacation destinations. We now have, on top of the measures that we've implemented earlier in the year, we've now implemented new measures that will require all, all arrivals to be tested and to be quarantined at a designated facility. The, the health of Canadians is our priority and we will do whatever it takes to protect Canadians. Now to vaccines. Canada is already seeing short-term reductions of Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, and there are concerns tonight about the supply of vaccines for Canada because of new export controls introduced in Europe. All of Canada's supply of Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna vaccines comes from Europe. And today, federal officials have said options are being explored to push back if Europe doesn't stand by verbal assurances that the new export controls will not affect Canada's vaccine supply. The Minister of International Trade told the House of Commons Trade Committee this morning she's been assured by European Union leaders Canada's supply is safe. Let me be crystal clear. Canada has expressed our continued expectation that this mechanism will not impact Canada's vaccine shipments and we have, repeated re- we have received repeated reassurances that shipments of vaccines to Canada will not be affected. We are pressed with this issue and ensuring the flow of vaccines so that all Canadians have access to safe, free vaccines without delay is our government's top priority. 
So we have heard reassurances from the Minister of Trade today, but opposition committee members say there is reason to be concerned about our vaccine supply from Europe. Let's bring in three members of Parliament to debate the latest developments. Arif Varani is the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Justice. Tracy Gray is the International Trade Critic for the Official Opposition Conservatives. And Daniel Blakey is the Trade Critic for the NDP. It's good to see you all. Thanks for being here. Mr. Varani, let me start with you. Uh, the Assistant Deputy Minister, uh, Steve Verhold, told the Trade Committee today that options are being being explored to respond to the Europeans if they do end up blocking vaccines to Canada. What are those options? What are we talking about? Well, I think what's important in terms of what you, the committee heard today and also what you've been hearing from various members of the government is that we've been given assurances that notwithstanding the export protections that you're seeing uh, being put in place, that reassurances have been given to the Prime Minister, to Minister Ng, uh, and also to Minister Anand, that it's not going to affect our supply in terms of honouring our contracts with Pfizer and Moderna. What the I think the uh, Assistant Deputy Minister is indicating there is that we are obviously trying to be prudent in terms of keeping all of the options on the table, uh, including starting back with where we were with procuring uh, contracts with seven different partners in terms of seven different supply uh, Supply chains, so that's what's being emphasized there, and I think it's also. Right, but I assume we're talking some sort of trade sanctions, and I guess if d does that not speak to the level of confidence if we're looking at options in case uh, the Europeans uh, don't provide the guarantees they say they're going to provide us. Well, I'm not going to speculate about trade sanctions at this point, Peter. I don't think that's productive, and I think it's it's entirely hypothetical. I think what I, what I would emphasize is that reassurances have, have been given. Canadians are sensing urgency here. We're responding to that urgency. This has been a top priority okay. of ours going back all the way to last March. And I think what's also important is that we've also made investments in domestic biomanufacturing facilities and in domestic options, all such right. as Medicago. I, I think so we'll, that's important we'll, we'll get Canadians to that. To Tracy Gray, the, the, the minister, insisted repeatedly today that she has guarantees from European leaders that Canada's vaccine supply is safe. Uh, do you wonder how safe it is as the government is actively exploring ways to fight back if the Europeans break those assurances. Well, thank you very much. And first, I want to say that after this announcement uh, came out late last week, that it was Conservatives that uh, put forth a request for an emergency meeting so that we can have a motion to discuss this because it's a topic that's very important to Canadians. They want certainty. And of course, we want uh, Canadians want the government to succeed. One of the, the key factors that we heard through testimony at committee today was in respects to the list of exempted countries. And Canada is not on that list of countries that are exempted from potential uh, potential vaccine restrictions. Right. And we were asking today, why are we not on the list? Can we get on the list? What does that mean? Verbal assurances, are they the same as having written confirmation? And those are the questions we were asking should today. We we should, we be, should we be prepared to retaliate if the supplies are cut? I think one of the things that we need to look at is we've also got individual countries that can also put forth requests and, and measures. And so it's a matter of going back to our existing contracts, looking what's in those contracts, looking at the agreements that we have and, uh, and requesting that we have those fulfilled. Mr. Blakey, how reliable do you think our vaccine supply from Europe is right now? Well, after today's uh, appearance at committee by, by, by the minister, I can't say I was uh, very reassured. One of the things that I found very frustrating from an accountability point of view is that we couldn't even get a straight answer on whether the minister had requested that Canada be on the list of exempted countries, nor did we get anything uh, in the way of an explanation as to why Canada didn't appear on that list, or even if the government asked 
European Union officials why Canada didn't make the cut when it came to the list of exempting countries. So, you know, when we talk about uh, governments being 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 transparent, we don't have any details of the uh, of the purchase agreements, not even a redacted uh, copy that that uh, that that reveals some of that information. So we're really I mean, I think what's frustrating, and for a lot of Canadians who just watched the whole Serb fiasco where the government said, just trust us, apply in good faith, and then we'll uh, fill in the details later, we're seeing a, di- a similar approach on the vaccine rollout, which is just trust us uh, to get the details right, and we're not getting enough information to be able to give a proper assessment okay. of the government's uh, performance. Mr. Varani, Canada has these verbal promises, the minister said, but nothing in writing from European leaders uh, guaranteeing Canada's vaccine supply won't be cut. Uh, why aren't we trying to get a written agreement to protect those supplies or to get an exemption from the Europeans as a number of other countries do? Well, let's just correct a few things. We we have seven agreements with seven different suppliers. Those are reduced to writing. Those are contracts and matters of law. Uh, The second point is that we've been transparent from the get-go, including all of last year, every time we signed a new agreement based on scientific advice we were given about the most promising vaccines. Those have borne fruit because Pfizer was the first one approved internationally. We already had a contract with Pfizer. Yeah, I get that, but I'm asking about Europe. Should Should we go back to the Europeans and say we want an exemption? You've given it to other countries. They haven't given it. It's true. They haven't given it to the U.S., the U.K., and Australia. But they have domestic vaccine production. We don't. So how do we get an exemption? So what we are doing is we are engaging on a daily basis with the European leadership. We've been given oral assurances that our contracts will be respected. That is the pressure that we are putting on our European uh, uh, colleagues at this point. And what's also, I think, should, should be underscored here is the relationship we have with the EU, the fact that we've had longstanding relationships and longstanding trade. Again, we are the only G7 member with free trading relationship with every other member of the G7. So we should be that able to get an exemption then. Well, that kind of goodwill has already been built up. And what I think is important for CPAC viewers is to understand is that when you have that kind of longstanding history, that bodes well for how Canada is going to be treated okay. by the EU. And we've heard Ursula von der Leyen give that assurance directly to the Prime Minister. Tracy Gray, what's your response to that? Should, should we be pushing hard now for something concrete? Say, to look, thank you for the promises. We want either some sort of written uh, uh, agreement. Yes, we have contracts. We want a written agreement from the EU, which is effectively, I guess, Uh, looping us into the exemption to say that, okay, Canada will not be part of, Canada doesn't need to worry about its supply uh, based on export controls because we are going to give you an exemption. Uh, None of this will apply to Canada. Well, thank you. And that's exactly the types of questions that we were asking at committee today. And I mean, frankly, the government should have known that there there could have been problems. We learned early on in the pandemic when there were other procurement issues around PPE and ventilators. And so as the government were government was signing these various contracts and looking at where productions were in different countries, this should have been something that, that should have been a foresight because it, it happened early on in the pandemic. Right now, we don't have assurances. We don't know why we're not on the list. We don't know if we can get on the list or how that's going to affect the vaccines that will be shipped to Canadians. Okay, Mr. Blakey, you questioned today whether we would be in this position if the government had negotiated the rights to manufacture some of these vaccines in Canada. Uh, We know European countries are facing shortfalls and that the EU is uh, these export controls are to protect against that. But what's the point you were making today if if we had, you know, that we might have missed an opportunity earlier on in this process to make sure we could make those vaccines under contract here? Well, that point is really about Canada taking responsibility to to be able to provide for its own people. I mean, and and I think you know that that's true in the context of the pandemic, but it's also true in the context of the last 
30 years or so where we've had liberal and conservative governments who have a blind faith in globalized trade in order in order to be able to deliver. So, I mean, unlike our trading partners who have also engaged in various kinds of free trade and low tariff trade, um, they at least have, when it comes to some important matters, they have industrial strategies for key industries. But we've had governments of two stripes now that think that if you sign a trade deal, that means you don't have to do the hard work of having a plan here at home in order to be able to provide for those really important things. So, you know, we've seen an important trading partner like the U.S., for instance, on softwood lumber, on steel and, and aluminum, change its mind. Having a trade agreement is not a substitute for having good domestic policy about how you provide the it, things that your population it, really needs. It seems now that the f- focus of, uh, of governments in this country is clearly that. Uh, Mr. Rennie, just a quick final comment to you here. The attention's now turned to how we stop this, how we make sure Canada can do this on its own next time, or at least uh, doesn't need as much outside help as it's getting, right? And I think, in, quickly, I'd say the focus has always been multi-pronged, international and domestic. Within days of the March pandemic, we were investing in Medicago. We've invested in the National Research, Research Council. And there's also promise at the University of Saskatchewan about domestic domestic okay. vaccine we're, production. We're, we're going to see how all of that rolls out. I want to thank you all for your time today, and I hope we get a chance to connect again soon. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, the House of Commons Health Committee also heard from experts today on Canada's COVID-19 response. One of them was Amir Adaran, a biologist and professor of law and medicine at the University of Ottawa, and he joins me now. Professor Adaran, good to see you again. Thanks for taking time to speak with me. Good to see you, Peter. Look, if I can summarize your remarks to the committee today, uh, as I heard them, uh, they focused largely on failings in the pandemic response and uh, some good things too, but on missed opportunities. So let me ask you, what's been the biggest failing in the response so far? The biggest failing in the response has been not to keep the number of cases low the way that that Atlantic Canada has done across. And by failing that, we're now in a critical situation for getting vaccines, because if we can't keep numbers low, at least maybe we can vaccinate our way out of it. But as you know, that's become quite a problem because Canada's vaccine deliveries are very few and very late relative to other countries. We are now behind all of our peers. The U.S., the U.K., the European Union all have achieved higher vaccination coverage than we have. And so where to next? I mean, are we going to take the difficult decisions to do in Atlantic Canada across the country? Or are we going to step up somehow our our ability to get vaccines, again, leading to another set of past errors that we should have been making our own vaccines since last year and the government showed no interest in doing that. Okay, so let's unpack some of that. The, um, it, you know, it's often pointed out that Canada hasn't had to deal with a public health crisis of this magnitude in at least a century and maybe never. Um, how valid is that argument? It's not valid at all. I mean, we are actually about the hardest country in the world to use that excuse with because we had SARS in 2003 and SARS was a dry run for coronavirus. Most countries weren't affected by SARS. We were the second most affected country in the world. So we had time to prepare for this. We had a warning that in a uniquely Canadian and inferior fashion, we did not pursue to its logical conclusion, which is that we should have stronger public health systems, stronger systems for pharmaceutical procurement or manufacturing. And here you go. This is the result. 
We, we heard from another uh, expert at the committee uh, today, uh, Dr. Isaac Bogotch, who's a frequent contributor on this program, who told the committee, look, yeah, there's been some bumps along the way, but when we have access to more vaccines, you'll see a faster distribution and vaccination process. And you were critical today in your comments about the vaccination plan, ex exactly what is it and how did we get so far behind. Uh, what about that, that argument that, yeah, look, it's a supply issue. As soon as we get that supply, we're going to be a whole lot better than we've been so far. I think that's, that's Pollyanna-ish. I really do. I mean, this country did not do a good job on flu vaccines just a few months ago. If you remember, Ontario didn't have enough of them. Flu vaccination is something we do every year. And there are still year-to-year -year problems with that. Canada's public health structures, I cannot emphasize this enough. As somebody who's lived in the U.S., the U.K., Switzerland, worked in public health around the world, Canada's public health structures are some of the poorest I've ever seen. And I am not confident that just because a vast number of shipments of vaccine arrive that all will be well. There is more to it than simply having the supply. What I have not heard from any Canadian politician, provincial or federal, are running a mass immunization campaign for this country, which def definitely needs to be done. Developing countries do it all the time. Mm. I mean, it, Bangladesh vaccinated over 50 million children in three weeks. If Bangladesh, one of the poorest countries in the world, can operate at that scale, where is our plan as Canadians to do something similarly impressive? It hasn't been aired. All right. You, you also uh, you talked about uh, uh, domestic, uh, the ability to uh, uh, not only manufacture vaccines here, but to manufacture for others the vaccines that they have created. You told the committee that the failure of Canada uh, not to negotiate the rights to manufacture AstraZeneca, for instance, in this country is a cardinal failure of the pandemic. How so? Well, if you look, n a number of other countries, countries have got deals with AstraZeneca to make their own supplies of vaccine. Australia did this, Brazil did this, Mexico, Argentina, India. These are countries which are not necessarily as developed as ours. And we simply failed to take that option. Now, of course, we still could, but it comes much later in the day and there will be very much greater pain inflicted by the lateness of that vaccine supply being manufactured and available. It is a cardinal failure that we did not try to manufacture at least the AstraZeneca vaccine, perhaps the Johnson & Johnson one too, because it has a similar manufacturing process, and have some of it ready now, the way that Australia, Brazil, India, and the other countries that I've named have done. All right, Amir Adaran, always good to get your perspective. Thanks again for speaking to me tonight. Appreciate it. Thanks, Peter. Joined now by three colleagues from the Parliamentary Press Gallery. Susan Delacourt is a columnist with the Toronto Star. Joël Denis Bellavance is the Parliamentary Bureau Chief for La Presse. And John Iveson is a columnist with the National Post and Parliamentary Bureau Chief for uh, Post Media. Good to see you all again, colleagues. Uh, John, let me start with you. Um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, the, I mean, how reassured you are by the, the comments you hear from the federal government when they say that they have guarantees from the European Union leaders that Canada's vaccine supply will not be cut because of these export controls. Um, reassured by that? Yeah, I, I think those verbal assurances aren't worth 
the paper they're not written on. Um, you know, you've got the, the Trade Commissioner telling uh, Minister Mary Ng that, um, you know, shipments won't be displaced. Justin Trudeau was told the same thing by the, the, the Commission's president. But at the same time, we haven't seen this thing in effect yet. And I think when, for example, when Pfizer starts to make up the shipments that it's lost, you know, that's 400,000 doses which are going to be leaving Europe and coming to Canada, Is that, are all the EU member states who are having to put their vaccine rollout on hold, are they going to be happy about that? I think at that stage... We might see a, ch a change of tune from the from the EU, and it, and from the committee meeting today, there's not much Canada can do about it. Right. Although Hall, the, the trade commissioner yeah. was there, who was saying, "Well, they seem to be on solid ground because this is a temporary measure, and it's uh, you know it's essential supplies." But Susan, uh, we are hearing that the Canadian side is looking at possible options if uh, Europe was to follow through with cutting supplies of vaccine to this country. Uh, to me, that sounds like uh, trade options. And what kind of road could that lead us down if countries start imposing trade sanctions and economic sanctions over supplies of vaccine? Well, imagine if we get into this same kind of fight with the United States, too, where we're already seeing that, uh, that we're going to be locked into a big negotiation with the Biden administration on Buy American. Um, pandemic, national, pandemic protectionism and vaccine nationalism are real things. And you're right, if they, if they ripple over into whatever the world looks like when we're done all this, that's not good. Um, I, I, I'm preferring to remain optimistic about this. I think uh, that, that this is just a bit of a bad patch, I'm hoping, and that that once everything starts rolling through, all of those vaccines that Canada have bought will make it less crucial that, um, that you know, there are hiccups like this along the way. JD, what are your thoughts? Well, two things. Uh, first of all, we have to remember that we do have a free trade deal with the European Union. So can we invoke some clauses in that deal to make sure that we are, you know, uh, not being punished for not... Uh, uh, having local productions here. So that's uh, one point that I would like to make. Uh, and second point is that I'm hearing that uh, there will be some some news coming out in a few next few these next few weeks about some potential local production uh, of vaccines. So that's uh, an interesting uh, element. And I think it should be it should have been looked at uh, earlier, uh, probably last year, once uh, there was a race to get a vaccine uh, put together, uh, Canada should have looked at look, making sure that we can have some local production, and that was not done until the late stages of this crisis. So maybe this is one of the right. weakness of the government's response, I would say, to this pandemic. Uh, John, Peter, can I just, yeah, can sure, I just pick ahead. up on what JD was saying? I, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. That the, the domestic component we've really uh, missed the ball on. I mean, the 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 UK they had no domestic capacity to build vaccine. And they decided to build it. That was last March. And, they, and, and now AstraZeneca is producing lots of vaccine in the UK. And we should have been doing that with our facility in Montreal. And I think that's what JD is alluding to. I think they're going to announce that something is going to go into that facility and produce vaccine domestically. But of course, it's going to take a while to ramp up. Even if we get into a spat with uh, the EU or with the, with the Americans or even with India, India is going to be producing AstraZeneca's vaccine when yep. it comes out. Whatever we do from a punitive point of view is not going to produce more vaccine. 
So it's a good you know, I think we're, we are not in a great place when it comes to vaccine. Susan, let me let me yeah. go back to you now. But uh, travel restrictions are kicking in this week, and then we hear questions <clears> in the House <throat> of Commons today about these big travel loopholes. Uh, you know, we've banned flights to Cancun and the Caribbean uh, from this country. Are the airlines we've banned them? The airlines agreed to stop running them. And here we have people pointing out you can still get on a plane in Toronto, fly to Washington or Philadelphia, and get a connector to Cancun if you want to go. How big's this loophole? Um, pretty big, but I think the quarantine restrictions at the other end are going to be the, the real thing that, that deter people from traveling. I thought the perfect moment in the House of Commons today, um, in, in sort of, in a way of summing up the mood of, of things right now was Michelle Rempel. She was asking a question about when are these travel restrictions going to end? And they have, they just barely started. <laughs> and, um, and... Omar Al-Gabra answered, we don't know whether the vaccines stop transmission. So in that one moment, we realized we don't know where we're going next. You know, like these travel restrictions um, are are until April, but we don't know that that uh, that is that the vaccines are going to return our lives to normal. We don't know when our lives are going to return to normal. And I think it, it was. It was the picture of Canada on February 1st, 2021 there. Well, they're right. That yeah. all of this is looped together in a not very hopeful way. We don't know where we're going. There's probably a flight uh, to get there, but we just don't know where it's going. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Joel, Denis, let me ask you about something else here. The, we, we saw a, a colleague, Bill Curry at The Globe, was going through the documents that have been presented to the House of Commons, uh, this order from uh, members of Parliament that the Liberals opposed at the time last fall to present these documents about the pandemic response. We're seeing some of the tensions in those documents between the uh, Public Health Agency of Canada and the Prime Minister's office in terms of feeling they're blindsided by announcements that uh, health can- public health agency is making and they're not getting a heads up. And, and uh, what do you make of when you look at that? What does it tell us about that relationship? And uh, one hopes it's still not that way, but it tells us what was going on back in, in March of last year. And I don't think it's limited to the PMO. I think you see that in every uh, capital in Canada, provincial capitals as well. You see tensions between Quebec, François Legault, and Dr. Uh, Horacio Arruda as well. Uh, I think it's, uh, you know, Mr. Trudeau and his office respect the science of this uh, uh, pandemic. You know, they listen to experts in the science. But I think they want to be uh, known and told in advance of what's happening so that they're not caught off guards by explaining some decisions that are being made by some authorities, uh, because obviously the main spokesperson of uh, the government in this pandemic has been the prime minister, and he has to be made aware of things that uh, may affect his decision and the government's decision at a time so they can be proper explanation, because if something goes uh, unexplained or badly explained, he is taking the fault. So I can understand that there needs to be a very, very uh, good relationship between the Prime Minister's office and that public agency so that communications is one message, very simple to Canadians. What do you see in all that, John? Well, I don't think it was at all surprising that in March uh, there was complete pandemonium when they were they were making uh, decisions on the hoof. Uh, and, you know, the right hand wasn't telling the left hand what they were, were, were doing while they were doing it. You would hope that that is, is, um, has been improved since then. I thought the interesting thing was that we got a glimpse behind the curtain because um, the Access to Information Act doesn't cover the Prime Minister's office, so we don't often see these types of emails. Uh, and it did give a little glimpse of the, the kind of 
how chaotic the decision-making process is. And often, as Susan finished with you, uh, political staff's usually excluded from these, right? So there we are seeing right. political staff involved in these conversations back and forth. And remember, this is, a, this is not the first time we've seen in this pandemic that there has been a little gap between the public servants and uh, the Prime Minister's office. The We Charity, uh, the investigation turned on that too. And we did see, again, uh, during that, uh, those temporary hearings or those short, uh, shortened hearings, we did see that there was tension there between, um, between public servants and the PMO about what they knew. Uh, it's interesting that the, the disputes revolve around communication, not arguments over substance, communication. All right. Uh, thank you all. Uh, good to talk to you again tonight, and we'll uh, talk again soon. Take care. Thanks, Peter. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, everybody. And that is all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics. I'm Peter Van Dusen from all of us here at CPAC. Thanks for watching.